Welcome to States and Migration in Europe, a podcast that explores the relations between the history of Europe and the movement of people. I'm Emmanuel Comte, a historian specializing in contemporary Europe and human migration. Be sure to visit my website, where you will find a plethora of resources to further your understanding on these topics, including uh, my online courses. In this episode, I am thrilled to have uh, Professor Evan Crowley join us. She's a leading expert on international migration and refugee issues, and currently leads the, the MEDEC project, a global consortium of researchers and practitioners examining the impact of migration on inequality and development across the world. Today, we will explore with uh, Professor Crowley key questions and challenges surrounding the migration flows to Europe. This episode is part of an ongoing series uh, dedicated to examining the immigration challenge uh, for Europe. So welcome, uh, Professor Crowley, and thank you uh, very much for uh, being here today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you. So let's start with, with a bit of, uh, of background. Uh, what drove uh, your interest in these questions of migration from the global south uh, to, to Europe? It's a good question. And you mentioned at the beginning, of course, your own background in, in history. So my engagement with these issues goes way back to the 1980s. So in the late 1980s, I was uh, undertaking my graduate studies at a time when we had significant forced migration in Europe as a consequence of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. And we were hearing a lot of uh, coverage in the news, nothing compared to today, of course, but about how refugee flows were impacting on different contexts in Europe. And, and I started writing, I wrote my first published working paper on these issues in the very early 1990s. So over the time, well, really over the last 35 years since I've been working on these issues, we've seen, you know, the ebbing and flowing of, of political and policy concern about migration to Europe, uh, really kind of culminating in, you know, the kind of so-called migration crisis of 2015, 2016, when we saw a large in, inflow of people across the Mediterranean. Uh, but my interest in this area goes way back. And I've been very interested actually to see the evolution of both research in this topic area, but also kind of public and political narratives around it because they've changed significantly over that time, albeit that they've deepened in, in quite obvious ways too. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And it uh, it highlights indeed um, the recurring pattern of uh, migration debates in, in European countries in the last decades. It's something that keeps coming yeah. back for some reason, yeah. which, yeah. which is what I mean, tries to explain also. <laughs> it comes back for lots of different different reasons. I mean, at one level, you've got the kind of the, the sheer humanitarian needs that arise as a consequence of the arrival of people, right? So you have, you know, the, particularly in the countries of Southern Europe in this more recent phase, but, you know, during the former Yugoslav crisis, of course, the neighboring states in that region. So there's a kind of immediate pressing humanitarian need. But we know that the issues around migration are about way more than the people that are moving, right? It's because migration is a deeply politically symbolic topic in Europe. It has been historically going way back to the French Huguenots, not a new issue. And every time we have this kind of, um, this emergence of a particular crisis, often related to a crisis, of course, that's happening elsewhere in the world, whether it was the former Yugoslavia breakup, or it was the Syrian crisis, or more recently, you know, Ukraine, 
Um, we, we have a very disproportionate, in my view, political response to that because it becomes symbolic of, you know, issues of national identity, issue of Europe's borders, its constituent parts, and all of those things which won't go way beyond the movement of the people themselves. And I say this because my current research is looking at South-South migration, so migration in the Global South, and we know that far more migration happens in the South than it does in the Global North. But Politically, I think migration in, in Europe in particular and North America has become, you know, deeply, deeply symbolic of other issues, including huge changes in the world uh, that have taken place over the, the past three or four decades associated with globalization. So people are really kind of, you know, pivoting around this issue of migration to, to want to say things actually about other things. It's a touchstone issue, um, as Stanley Cohen would say. Um, and, that, and that's why I think it has such salience at the, at the current time. And given how uh, odd debates about migration are, uh, how do you study them yourself? Which research mm. methods do you use? Well, it varies according to the project. I mean, the current project I'm involved in, the MyDeck Hub, is very much about decentering the production of knowledge on migration to the South, as I say, where most migration takes place, but also, you know, moving away from some of the very static concepts that we have in the North, in the West, about why migration happens, often based on kind of economic premises. You know, there are a whole range of human of spiritual, of other aspirational factors that kind of enter into the decision to migrate. And the kinds of methods that we tend to use in migration research are often not very, um, you know, they're not very reflective of those different experiences. And so the researchers that we have on MyDEC, you know, engage a whole range of other methodological approaches, creative, artistic, um, anthropological, as well as some of the more traditional, you know, qualitative and quantitative methods. So certainly the research that we've undertaken with the MedMig project in the Mediterranean region has used in-depth interviews, but again, trying very much to be open-minded uh, to the different experiences that people have and not to to ask the questions in a way that leads us to the conclusions that we want to hear, right? Because that's what's often happening in migration research. And I say that because when we conduct research from Europe and position of Europe, we tend to focus in the, uh, the kind of European end of the problem or the issue, rather than understanding that by the time people reach Europe, they've often already traveled through multiple countries and often over a very long period of time because the nature of migration control has really made it very difficult for people to travel directly. And so we have to be very careful with our research that we don't reinforce certain dominant narratives around migration journeys through the questions that we ask. For example, assuming that everybody wants to come to Europe because that's the dominant political discourse. And in migration terms, it's not the dominant movement. So being very cognizant of both the different factors that shape migration decision-making and having methods that reflect that, but also being cognizant of our own responsibility of researchers in informing and shaping the political narratives that dominate. Transit migration, for example, there was a concept that developed through academic research, but has been sort of co-opted, if you like, by policymakers to reflect this idea that people are always moving onwards, always wanting to come to Europe, when in fact most people build lives in the first or second countries they move to and don't necessarily intend to travel on. So I think, I think we have to be careful methodologically, but also conceptually as to how we engage with these topics. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, absolutely. The, the numbers are clear. Uh, the 
migrants who make it to Europe are, are minority, and uh, most migration flows take place uh, within uh, within the global south. But as we were mentioning earlier, that is. Um, this is this uh, these polemics around uh, around migration also drive attention and um, and in the last decades this attention has tended to focus on the migration uh, to Europe. So having uh, said that um, it's a minority flow, uh, which countries do most migrants to Europe come from? Well, by that you mean most migrants who actually manage to arrive in Europe, because most migrants don't arrive in Europe, even if they intend to arrive, if that makes sense. Let's also include those who would like, but cannot make it. And that's a very difficult question to address, because, of course, you know, this idea of people's aspirations and their reality, there's often a mismatch between, you know, as in our lives, we have aspirations to do all sorts of things. And the reality is quite different. But if we look at the flows, for example, in 2015, 2016, when we conducted the MedMig research, we had effectively um, two different flows, one across the Mediterranean to Italy and Malta in particular, and then one across the Aegean, primarily from Turkey to Greece. I mean, two different flows, the vast majority, of course, coming across um, from Turkey to Greece. Um, and the flows reflect really the kind of composition of people who are moving in different ways. So the vast majority of people who arrived in 2015, 2016 were coming from a limited number of countries that won't surprise you. Syria, Afghanistan um, and Iraq, or at least originally coming from those countries, because in fact, many people had spent some time in other countries, you know, particularly in places like, for example, Lebanon and Jordan in the case of the, the Syrians. And then through the sort of more southerly route, if you like, into Italy, you have people who've, who've ended up moving up through Africa in particular, not exclusively because there are also Syrians and others coming through that route, but, but a much more diverse range of countries, often from West and West Africa, but also from places like Eritrea, for example, where we have, you know, a huge ongoing problem of military conscription, um, forced military conscription. And many of those people had passed through and had often stayed in Libya for a very long time. Some of those you might describe as more economically motivated because they'd come to Libya, one of the richest parts of of Africa and continent, at least at that time, um, in order to look for work. And then they found themselves in these conditions of, you know, really awful forced labor, kidnapping and other very significant human rights violations, which effectively pushed them into the category of refugees. A lot of my work has really been critiquing this notion of categories and how people can move into and through categories at different points in their experience. So the Syrians who, you know, left because of the conflict, the ongoing conflict in Syria, found themselves in places like Lebanon and Jordan, just unable to economically survive and thrive, moved on often for economic reasons. And those that moved economically from places in West Africa to, for example, Libya to, for economic reasons, effectively transitioned into needing protection because of what happened to them there. So, you know, we see sort of different movements and different um different, uh, you know, generating conditions in terms of the original migration decision, but a kind of convergence around what then happens in the places that move to that then made people think, look, you know, I am not going to have a chance to rebuild my life here. I am not going to be able to support my children, my family. I'm not going to be protected in the case of Libya. I need to find something else. And that kind of convergence of different circumstances was in some way what came together 
to create the situation we had in 2015, 2016. Many of the nationalities who are arriving in, in Europe now, of course, are much the same. Look what's happened to, to Afghanistan in recent years with the return of the Taliban. Look what's happening in, in Syria in terms of the, you know, the potential for people to make a life in the countries that they've moved to. And there are still ongoing conflicts in those parts of Africa where people are moving from originally. So in some senses, nothing has changed about the driving conditions. What's changing is what's happening in the places that people first moved to. And that's what often just sort of explains in more kind of realistic fashion what's going on in terms of the flows to Europe. Yes, so in the, in, in, in the geography of flows uh, you have mentioned, uh, I think we can have this kind of rule of thumb that, uh, but maybe it's too simplistic that basically the Eastern Mediterranean route via Turkey and Greece uh, is for migrants from Asia. And you mentioned Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Whereas the Central Mediterranean route is through Italy or, or Malta is more for migrants from Africa. And here you, you mentioned um, migrants from the Horn of Africa, from uh, Eritrea in, in, in particular. Uh, but I, I suppose in the in the latter case, there are also migrants from the Sahel and Nigeria and Mali and and and, mm. and those various countries. And uh, you you introduce complexity into the drivers of those mm. migration flows, as you said very well. That is someone who leaves their country first as a refugee, for instance, Syria or Eritrea. Then, uh, uh, no, uh, yes, Syria or Eritrea. Then ends up in another country where the motivations to keep moving change and become more economic. And in the case of Libya, it's the opposite. These are migrants who sometimes left for economic reasons and once in Libya become actual political uh, refugees uh, because, uh, because of um, cases of kidnapping, for instance, forced labor, uh, violence against them. Do you have concrete concrete examples of uh, itineraries like that of migrants? Because mm -hmm. you have conducted um, quite uh, relevant fieldwork uh, in the midst of the uh, so-called migration crisis. Uh, so do you have any, any concrete uh, life cases to, to, to share with us? Yeah, I mean, there are, we we wrote a book, Policy Press, uh, Bristol. Um, basically, we have multiple examples in there. I mean, you know, again, this kind of these stories of kidnapping, particularly for Eritreans. So, uh, for different nationalities, we find different kinds of stories. Um, you know, and many many stories of people traveling across the sea and having these experiences in boats and what happens to them when they arrive. You know, many examples of people dying en route or experiencing really quite. Um, uh, quite appalling human rights violations of one kind or another whilst in particular countries. Um, many examples of, you know, families being unable to feed themselves or feed them ch their children when they're in places like Turkey, for example, for a whole myriad of different reasons. So, yeah, I mean, the book is the book and the reports from that project are full of examples. I mean, we really wanted to, you know, humanize that story because one of the features of the 2015, 2016 um, crisis, if we call it that, it's a political crisis as much as anything else, um, was that it was very dehumanized. You had some human stories, particularly the story of Elan Kurdi, for example, the, the child that was washed up on, on the beach in Turkey. But in general terms, it was a story of numbers, right? So you lost the humanity of, of the individual experiences. So the book that we wrote is, is full of these rich examples of, uh, of how people's 
you know, how people's experiences takes them through these different particular routes and the kind of decisions that they make and how those decisions are often shaped by policy responses as much as anything else, which limit the opportunities for people to travel legally. So people for often, for example, often on a journey will only use smugglers at certain points in the journey where they can't travel freely or legally or where they need particular kinds of documents. So the systems themselves are pushing people in particular ways in terms of the choices they make and often pushing them to make much more dangerous or difficult journeys than they would choose to do otherwise. Bearing in mind that most people who migrate are not the poorest. We know this for a fact. Most people have either more financial resources or capital or certainly more social capital in terms of their connections. So many of these people would have been able to travel in other ways had they had the opportunity to do so. They would, for example, have applied for visas if they had been able to do so. Um, and they would have invested the resources in, in what then happened to them when they arrived in the country of, or of destination in Europe, then they would have spent that money on making the journey in the first place. A lot of very expensive journeys, a lot of dangerous journeys as a consequence of policy responses which limited people's options. So I think you know that part of the, the kind of the human experience is important, but human experience doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It's a consequence of structural inequalities that limit people's potential to move, you know, to improve their lives, whether that's in terms of need for protection or it's in terms of needs of, you know, basic economic um, livelihood survival. So I think the human story is very important, but it's really important also not to just sort of position people as sort of you know, just victims of stuff that's happening. This stuff that's happening is happening because of structural inequalities. It's, you know, it's partly deliberative in terms of policymaking, but it's also a symptom of the fact that some of us have way more privileges than others in terms of the choices we make about our futures. And uh, absolutely, this what you say reminds me a, a comment by um, the historian Philip Thayer in a, a recent book on uh, refugees since 1492 to the present, and in which he was saying that the money that people would like to move pay to smugglers, mm -hmm. they could have used it to start a business in the country of destination or further their yeah. skills there, uh, learn the language, and, and so on. And you mentioned that at the beginning of, of the episode that um, the journeys of people who move is already very much affected by the policy framework uh, designed by European countries. So as you say, they resort to smugglers when the, um, the administrative conditions uh, make the journey impossible and they take a different route that happens to be uh, quite dangerous. So uh, could you make it a bit more concrete how the direction of migration flows is affected by um, by the uh, European policies? We, we know this, uh, this policy of externalization of migration control that the European Union had developed so that border has kept moving away and away from, from Europe. How does it affect uh, migrants uh, concretely? Well, externalization is important, but also the concept of deterrence is important because many of the policies that are you know, formulated by you know, EU member states and, and now, you know, by the UK out, out with that system are premised on this idea that if you make things hard enough or difficult enough 
or unpleasant enough for people, they would choose not to come. So there's this kind of, there's this fundamental idea about choice that's embedded in there, but there's also this fundamental idea that, that people have full access to all the information about the different policy frameworks that exist, you know, across Europe. And, and even people like you and I, who, you know, this is our living, this is what we, we do. We research policy, we try to understand how these things operate in practice. Even we really struggle to keep up with the changes that are going on because there are, you know, many uh, things that are either not implemented or there are gaps between implementation and practice. So the idea, and they're in different languages. So the idea that a, a would-be migrant would be able to, uh, to pick up on those things seems unlikely. Nonetheless, the premise of deterrence underpins a lot of European policymaking at the kind of system level, but also at the individual country level. Um, and so what you see are things like, for example, you know, carrier sanctions that prevent people from getting on an airplane with a ticket because it's impossible to apply for asylum out with the country um, of destination or to where you want to make an asylum application. Um, but basically, because of these carriers um, sanctions, you know, airline staff have the right to sort of prevent people from boarding if they don't think the documentation is correct, because if they don't, they will receive a substantial fine for the people that board who then go on to claim asylum. So it very concretely, even at the point of getting on, on a plane, impacts the extent to which people can or cannot make regular journeys. Um, things like detention, which are again used across Europe, not just to process people at the end of their applications in order to facilitate their removal because they've reached the end of judicial procedures, but rather to sort of send a message again to people that if they come in irregularly, in some way, even though there is no regular way, um, they will sort of suffer the consequences in terms of the potential of detention. This is a deterrent that is very much seen at the heart of UK policymaking, as reflected in the small boats policy, as reflected in the fact that huge areas of detention estate are now being mobilised um, to, to deter people from making that cross um, channel crossing um, and potentially also the introduction of, of, of ships, for example, and ferries that are going to be converted into detention estate. So this idea of deterrence, it really makes a difference because it physically stops people getting on planes. And it, um, it, it in our experience, messages about what the deterrents are reach people at different stages in those their journey. So we talk to people who will tell us, you know, um, I was intending to go to this country because my aunt is living there, but then she sent me a message that actually this policy has changed and I met someone who said that they were going to Sweden and the policy there is better. It's not based necessarily on any factual information about the reality of how life will be for them in that country but it's about you know this kind of misinformation and partial information that becomes part of the the kind of soup within which um uh, asylum seekers and migrants are swimming it's it's all intended to sort of you know confuse and, and deter people from making certain decisions that ultimately might be in their best interest you know joining family members is a well-known strategy for integration much easier for the country of destination to have people working in communities together but actually may lead people ironically to, to do to make decisions which are neither in their best interest or the receiving country's best interest so, I mean, those are some very concrete examples of how those policies impact on the decision-making process. Yeah, so depending on the, uh, on the, 
on the echoes they received of policies, uh, they can change their uh, final destination with uh, uh, an impact possibly also on their, on their integration. Uh, there, there has been a, a study made of, um, on social networks uh, in Arab, in Turkey, showing um, also a spike in interest in Germany uh, at the time of Merkel's key speeches in 2015. So some recent research has, has clearly um, evidenced um, evidenced this, um, this phenomenon. But we were talking uh, earlier about those migrants who actually move and make it, where do they come from? And we're also mentioning those who aspire to, to, to move, but actually don't make it. So to what extent do you think deterrence works? I find the issue of deterrence very strange in a way because Europe needs migrants. So, you know, and Europe has plenty of regular routes for migrants of one kind or another, right? Um, from Africa, from Asia, from, from other parts of, the north so it's a very odd thing right i mean the deterrence here is really about the movement the type of movement it's not really about what happens to people when they arrive there's a very strange disconnect between you know the kind of regular and the irregular and the irregular being the unwanted the bad migrant in various ways but there being way more regular migration you know from africa for example there's far more regular migration than there is irregular migration so it's kind of this narrative that's developed for a long time now. And I'm thinking back to when I first joined the Home Office at the end of the 1990s, the UK Home Office, um, when Tony Blair was in power and David Blunkett was Home Secretary. I was responsible for the Asylum and Immigration Research Programme. And, you know, we heard this talk about kind of good migrant, bad migrant. So, and a lot of that was all about the mode of entry. And so the deterrent really is about the mode of entry. Um, it's a very peculiar situation in some ways, because when people actually arrive, you know, the reality of integration policies or non-integration, they kind of kick in. So this is about the integration um, process. Um, people are not deterred by the method of the journey. People acknowledge, because there are no other choices available to them, that if they wish to seek protection or they wish to make a better life for themselves, there are no other alternatives. So inshallah, they will take whatever means are necessary to do that. And those drivers can be very powerful, either in terms of people's needs for protection or in terms of their aspirations to make a better life. So in my experience, this idea of deterrence is, is kind of the audience for this is, is not the migrants. The audience for this is, is the European population, right? Because most people can't even necessarily understand the detail. They don't necessarily speak the language. It's been mediated by smugglers and other constituencies who have a vested interest in people making some journeys rather than others, because they'll make more money out of some journeys rather than others. Um, I, I don't know that a deterrent policy is ever going to have a direct impact on a on a migrant or an asylum seeker because there's such a gap between their relationship, their contact with the deterrent measure and everything that comes in between. So I think far more factors will in the end shape it, including the fact that there are many other opportunities to, available to migrants that are not in Europe. You know, 70 percent of migration in Africa is in Africa. And there are plenty of opportunities for migrants elsewhere. So given that Europe actually wants and needs migrants, that's a very strange situation to be constantly wanting to put people off coming, some of whom will come anyway, and others of whom will choose to go elsewhere, often at Europe's expense. 
So, yeah, I, I think the deterrent idea is not aimed at the migrant. It's aimed at the political discourse in Europe, and it serves particular purposes, not just in terms of migration policy, but in terms of a kind of broader, very deeply racialized narrative around identity. You know, it's no surprise to any of us that the Ukrainian crisis was met with a very different response than, for example, the, the crisis in Afghanistan or in Syria or in any part of Africa you care to mention. You know, this is a very deeply racialized discourse and it reflects the racial and national identity of Europe as much or if not more so than the issue of migration. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we had the last episode with uh, Ivan Kachanovsky uh, on on the the refugees uh, from Ukraine. Uh, so yeah, this issue this issue of of deterrence is puzzling because uh, it seems to me the dominant political framework since a while, but the impact uh, the impact is is not entirely clear. But uh, we have referred what you said um, that. Uh, the destination of these policies may be more in Europe than among among the migrants. So, how do you see uh, the public demand for information and knowledge on these questions? Do you think that uh, to make it more concrete, do you think that uh, people want to hear certain narratives? about um, migration restrictions necessarily? Or do you think that to some extent this particular demand is itself shaped by the policy, uh, the policy process? That is, are people intrinsically xenophobic or as you were suggesting, maybe racist? Or do you think that this may be also an outcome of something else. So wh where do you see a public demand for knowledge and information about these questions? Mm. Unfortunately, there isn't much public demand for knowledge and information about these questions. That's kind mm -hmm. of the point. You know, a lot of it now is mediated by the media. There is a huge amount of information about the realities of what's going on, of course, but the media, particularly limited number of media outlets, um, are very much shaping the not just not just the information available to the public, but also the kind of form in which that information is presented. So even things that could be seen to be a positive outcome, you know, various you know, huge amount of data about the contribution of migrants and refugees to economic development, to you know, gaps in taxation, to um, to the demographic deficit, to all sorts of things that are very positive. That information is simply not making it into the public debate in terms of the media discourse, right? Um, so it's not as if the media is sort of factually representing these issues. It's kind of giving the public a balanced information about the sort of, you know, the, the pros and cons, if you like, or the benefits and the disadvantages or the kind of, it's not giving the public that sort of information on which to make its own judgment. It is basically taking a position in relation to the issues while simultaneously failing to report other issues. You know, nobody is talking about migration in a positive way in Europe, or very few are. And that is not, as I say, not just about the migration issue. It's about a trend across Europe uh, to the right, essentially. And migration fits in that move to the right in a very particular way. It's not as if 
it's just about migration and the rest of Europe, you know, the rest of the issues in Europe are much more kind of nuanced. There is a worldview that is developing in the Europe or has developed in the European context that positions the South and positions its Europe as a sort of entity in the world in a very particular way. And then migration sits in that and reinforces it in certain ways. So it's not just about migration. It's not just about Europe. It's about it's a relational dialogue or a narrative that's constructed that's about Europe's place in the world. And migration is a very convenient way of engaging with that debate. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say that it's just about migration. And it's hard to say that people only want migration information. It's a whole range of different issues across Europe where people are not getting access to data and information about the realities of what's happening because it's part of a broader European project at some level. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking also that, of course, most people, when they think about those questions, um, there, there are two sides. That is, on the one end, there is this, um, there is a lot of empathy. You mentioned the case of Alan Curtis. That is, when we enter into concrete life uh, cases, uh, people, you will have a, 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 a lot of empathy in the public about that. But on the other end, as you mentioned, the default position seems to be to to require more restrictions. So if you if you take the case of um, this politician uh, Michel Barnier, who was leading the Brexit negotiation um, on the side of the EU, then after leading the Brexit negotiation, he embarked in an attempt to 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 become uh, president of the Republic in France. But he immediately took a very anti-immigration position. Why? Because it was a way for him probably to try to gather his, his party. But uh, the, the question seemed to be that as soon as you talk about migration, there is an implicit that I think is wrong and that you have well encapsulated in your various comments. That is, when you talk about migration in the political sphere, the implicit is that you can stop it. The implicit about the, in the discussion, the debates about migration is that you can close borders. You can close borders. There was this debate also about uh, Angela Merkel's policy in 2015. People are accused there to have opened the borders. And again, I have already referred to him, to, to, to Philippe Terre, but in his book, he, he makes also this very important point. She did not open the border. The borders were not closed. This is, and this was the case because this is a Schengen area without a border crossing, but it's very hard to prevent people from moving. And yet I, I have the feeling that the political debate is based on the assumption that actually it's very easy. And um, this is this is what I had in mind that in this political debate may be, uh, may be biased, that people think are led to believe that actually it's very easy to stop migration, you just need to want it. Whereas, as you have mentioned, it's it's uh, much more difficult. Uh, could you react to, to, this, uh, to this idea? Does it echo your research? Listen, nobody in Europe wants migration to stop. Migration is a necessary thing for Europe and huge amounts of migration happen legally, regularly, you know, go to any airport in Europe on any day of the week and you will see that, right? So what is happening here is this discourse of deterrence and irregularity is actually referring to a very small proportion of all migrants, right? But it's, so it's not about stopping migration. Everybody knows that Europe would collapse as would every other part of the world without migration, right? So it's not about that. It's about the symbolism of irregularity 
and also of exceptionalism because basically what happens whenever you have a good a good migrant you know someone you know often a child or a victim like Aileen Kurdi that is exceptional because what you have is the other narrative that is around frankly you know the young man either black or muslim or both who is a threat right so there's this kind of this humanitarian exceptionalism about the victim we have that narrative but it's a very small part you, you have a much stronger narrative around the other who is young male black and or muslim um most people who migrate in europe are not in that category no politician seemingly is brave enough to say actually hold on a minute you know most migration that's happening in Europe is very essential. We have open borders internally, but actually pretty open borders externally too. And that our, actually this narrative around stopping the borders is not helpful because if we stop the borders or close the borders, um, then you know my, migration in Europe will slow down or end and we will have far less economic, social and cultural development than we've had historically for the last X number of centuries. It's about being honest about what kind of migration people want to stop. And it's not most migration, it's migration that is perceived to be a threat. And it's only a threat because it's already pushed into that marginalized route. And it's already pushed in, into a position where it's presented as being, you know, incapable of contributing at best or potentially a threat, but it's not the majority of migration. And I think, in a way, politicians in Europe and elsewhere, it has to be said, have backed themselves into a political corner because they haven't been honest about the need for migration from a long way back here. We're talking, you know, the three decades at least that I've been working on this area. They have made it very difficult for themselves to sell the case that actually migration is, you know, necessary and a fundamental part of what we are as a society. And now, you know, the only option they have is is to sort of, you know, pick on those parts of migration that are politically more difficult, but they can't sort of say, well, migration is good because they've already identified it as not being good or at least never spoken about it in a positive sense. So, you know, I, I think we do need to be honest about the kinds of migration here we're talking about. It's not that migration is bad or even that politicians in Europe think that migration is bad. They are just very averse to a certain kind of migration that they have positioned as being a problem already. The UK policy is a prime example of that. You know, again, far more migration to the UK comes through other routes. But the small boats issue has become an issue because since the UK left the European Union and withdrew from the Dublin regulation, you know, the smugglers and others have, have told migrants that that's the place they should go because they can't yeah. be returned. You know, so ironically, again, you know, taking taking back the borders in the case of the UK had exactly the opposite of its intended effect. I mean, you know, many of us said that it would happen. It's happened. But what's the consequence of that? Well, the consequence of that is it's reinforced in the political and media discourse that migration is a problem of its own making, essentially, in that case. But, you know, nobody, it seems to me, is brave enough to actually have an honest conversation about migration. And to accept that that's a very racialized conversation at the moment, because it is. Um, uh, I, uh, let's also mention that, as, as you refer to Brexit, that um, a major factor in the Brexit vote was migration from the EU. So, yeah, this was also white migration. And um, 
we can see also that it can have a real uh, consequences and ma major consequences, um, like in the case of Brexit. Um, so how do you think researchers uh, like you um, and, uh, and us can, um, can try to change um, to change um, the information, try to change the problems, uh, the problems that you have described, and that has afterwards uh, real-world uh, consequences. What, what can researchers do and answer, find the demand to which they can answer? Yeah, I mean, I will come on to that question, but just to pick up on your point about Brexit and white migration, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it's a very interesting point, but I think the whole point about that debate around migration in the context of um, European membership um, was muddied by the fact that people really didn't understand what they were voting for with regard to migration. And because in 2014, when, the, when Poland joined the European Union, there was a large number of Polish migrants to... To, to Europe and there was a uh, to the UK and there was a particular aversion to Polish migrants because of this long history of kind of anti-Eastern European sentiment. You know, people didn't really understand even the expansion of Europe to include Poland meant that Poland were in the same category as France, Italy, and other countries which were, you know, considered to be, you know, good white migrant countries as far as um, migration to the UK was concerned. So there's a very kind of, you know. There's another set of prejudices operating in that debate around um, Brexit and migration, I think, not to mention the fact that, you know, uh, many people thought that actually it would prevent migration from outside of Europe. You know, we had people in the streets afterwards telling, telling people, you know, Pakistanis go home and worse in terms of the racialized language. So people sort of had all sorts of misinformation or misunderstandings about it. it was, again, symbolically representing a position in relation to migration in general, not specifically around um, the EU, in my view. So, I mean, that's a good example, really, as to how far away we are from people having good factual information about migration, right? But people thought that withdrawing from the European Union would end migration from Pakistan just proves how both ill-informed people are of the, of the facts, but also how there's a propensity to allow people to think things that helps political leaders in different ways. I think it's very challenging for us as researchers. I mean, I've worked in this area now for 35 years, more or less. I have many more frustrating days than I do um, joyous days when it comes to seeing the direction of travel in terms of the political and public debate, of course. You know, it's profoundly disappointing that all of that work that we do generating, you know, good quality knowledge based on evidence and also engaging with the complexities that we've been talking about in this episode, um, that that all just gets kind of thrown out of the window and flattened out by people who have a different political motivation. Frankly, it can be very, very frustrating and disappointing. But we have to find ways of doing it. And one of the things that we do in my deck is is, yeah. you know, find hooks to be able to engage people differently, including in the emotional aspects of migration, which are clearly there and very profound. So, for example, we use animation to be able to tell a different story of migration, to engage people in the kind of feelings of migration and the kind of motivations that people have 
and then hopefully when they're engaged, bombard them perhaps with some of the factual information. I don't think facts is really what this is about anymore. You know, we have a lot of facts about migration, but I've learned historically in terms of my own career that giving people facts without context doesn't help and in fact can make things worse. I remember having a conversation once with a focus group in Islington in, in North London, from a very poor working class background and trying to explain to them that actually there were only 100,000 refugees in the UK. Um, you know, relative to the rest of the world, of course, that's a very small number. But for them, that number, because it's decontextualized and has no meaning other than that which is attached to it by the media, felt very threatening. So I think we have to really engage with the fact that just numbers alone or just facts alone are not sufficient. We kind of need to, tell a different story about migration, um, a story which gives, you know, gives it this complexity and which encourages others, and I include politicians in this um, description, to want to set, tell more of the story of migration that goes beyond the irregular, the illegal, the unwanted, that actually talks about migration in all of its facets and really emphasizes the historical contribution of migration to our cultures to our economies you know if you talk to people about the day-to-day -day realities of migration in their lives a, a very large proportion of people and a growing proportion have a direct relationship with migration either because they're they themselves have family members who have moved abroad or they have somebody in the family who's married somebody from a different background i mean migration is just so embedded in people's day-to-day -day lives these days but the story of migration as to how that came to be is not being told. And that's where politicians and the media really has a role to play, is telling that story in all of its complexity and explaining how what we are now is a product of, of that past, of that historical migration past. Um, you know, I find when we talk to people in particularly drawing upon history to explain to people that this is why this is happening now as a consequence of that that happened then, you do see light bulb moments going on because people don't have this context. So it's about creating a different story, one that they can relate to, that they understand, that they can connect with in some way, rather than positioning the migrant as a threat that potentially is going to take away from them when they're feeling already that they don't have what they want in their lives. That's the story we have to tell. And we can tell that as researchers and make that easier for others to want to tell the story too. Yeah, yeah. The, the issue is that I was, of course, we, we know why a number of people position themselves um, themselves like, like this. There is immigrant criminality, there is religious violence, and it's uh, you cannot deny uh, certain facts like, like these ones as well. But uh, my impression is that, uh, as you mentioned, the movement of people is something much broader. And those problems to which anti-immigrant politicians will typically refer may not be in themselves the sheer outcome of the movement of people. That is, there may be other factors that shape, for instance, gang violence in certain suburbs or um, that shape um, religious violence. And uh, by thinking it's a movement of people that is a problem 
And each time, as early as people move, we are bound to have this kind of problem. I think here is a mistake. And those countries, I think, and you mentioned Brexit and the UK, those countries that have a misdiagnosis of the problem, that they think it's a sheer movement of people that share in all those problems. Why? Because those problems are typically sometimes um, more carried out by immigrants. And it's not even always the case, but it's true that it can happen. Yes, but what if there are not other factors that explain this, uh, these problems? And if you attack the movement of people, you can actually, <laughs> you, you shoot yourself in the, in the foot. And um, here, the, the case of Brexit is an interesting example because, uh, because it's a country that tried to, to, to use the wrong method to solve its problems out of a misdiagnosis, lack of information. And uh, if you stop the movement of people, you just... Um, as you say, you 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 commit economic economic suicide, economic economic collapse. Anyway, this was a, a very a very interesting and insightful uh, conversation. Uh, thank you very much, Evan. Would you like to to conclude this discussion uh, about migration to Europe, the misconceptions in the public, and the way to address them? Thank you. It's been an interesting conversation. It's always nice, I think, to have longer periods of time to discuss these things in more detail what we often have is like little you know little um, snapshots of things in a few sound bites of a two or three minutes and it's quite difficult to convey the complexity I mean I don't want to suggest that everything is perfect in the world of migration any more than it's perfect in any other part of the world right I mean migration is a social process it's an economic process there are many many you know, processes that happen in life in the world that are not perfect. You know, processes of social transformation in general are not perfect. They have all sorts of challenges of one kind or another. So it's not to suggest that, you know, open up all the borders, everything would be fine. There's no issues associated with migration. That's not the case at all. What I'm calling for, I guess, is just a, you know, a more complicated and sophisticated approach to an issue that is not going away. And indeed, which has shaped who we are right up you know, all through our history into the present, you know, so what we have now is a very particular, very nuanced, very, you know, narrow reading of what migration is as a, as a thing, you said it yourself, you know, at the movement of people, whereas migration is a, is a consequence of lots of other social processes, economic processes, political process. And I think it's also true of policy. I mean, policy tends to focus on migration policy rather than all those other policies, which then have an impact and implications for whether migration does or doesn't happen, for example, in labor markets or in social protection or in all those other um, areas of the world or development more generally. So I think, yeah, seeing migration not as a as a, as, a, as a subjective or subject thing to focus in on, but understanding migration as part of a broader social process of social and economic transformation, I think with all of its you know, pros and cons and flaws, but actually many more pros than cons, um, would just enable us to have a different conversation about what's happening and therefore what the policy um, response might be. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, that's the point. Really. I, I'm far from idealistic about what are the challenges associated with migration? I've seen enough of the, the bad to, to know what is possible. But I also think there's a lot of good in this. Um, and you, you don't need to know, look further than our past to be able to see that essentially. So 
uh, that's kind of my plea to, to to be a bit more historically contextualized and also um yeah contextualized in general i suppose so yeah thank you for the opportunity i've enjoyed it Thank you, thank you very much, Professor Crowley. And uh, now I, I invite our, our listeners to to share feedback or, or questions uh, with us, and to stay tuned for uh, our series dedicated to the immigration challenge for Europe. Our next episode will have uh, Professor Maurizio Ambrosini uh, to discuss the to explore the world of irregular immigrants in Europe. So we will move uh, one, one stage uh, further. So thank you very much, uh, Evan Crowley, for having participated in, in this uh, episode.